Hey there, welcome back to the Men, Sex and Pleasure podcast. I'm your host, Cam Fraser. This is episode number 45. We're talking all things masculinity, sexuality, male bodies and men's experiences of pleasure. And today I have the pleasure of chatting with Dominic Quatuccio. Dominic is the host of the Great Man Within podcast, a show for high-performing men covering the subjects of purpose, masculinity and sex. He's also the author of two books, Design Your Future and On Purpose Leadership, which both focus on living the best version of yourself. He also runs the Great Man Mastermind, a global community of men doing inner work and living their best selves. Dominic and I talk about his journey through Sex Addicts Anonymous. Now he has reframed his relationship with sex. You can find out more about Dominic's story and the work that he's doing, some really good work that he's doing with men uh, on Instagram at Dominic Q and uh, at his website, which is DominicQ.com. This is a really potent episode. Dominic gets really raw and vulnerable with the share that he does throughout this episode. It's um, not a conversation that I hear a lot of men having. Uh, regarding sex addiction and their relationship with compulsive sexual behavior. So this is a great episode. If that particular topic resonates with you, I really enjoyed connecting with Dominic and uh, gained a lot of insights from him throughout this conversation. So enjoy. You just stand there and smile while these kids get the impression that sex is dirt and lust and love are the same thing, that it's okay to try perversion just for kicks. When a man becomes sexually excited, blood rushes into the chambers in the spongy erectile tissues in his penis. You can use your knowledge with responsibility and real love, or you can use it wantonly and with mere animal appetite. It's your effect. Yeah, the, the first thing then is, is not a question, it's an invitation, and it's an invitation for you to share uh, as much or as little as you like about uh, some of your journey, maybe the work that you're doing now, your mission statement, the philosophy behind this work, and um, whatever's alive for you at the moment, man. I'd love to, to just give you the floor for a couple of moments for you to share whatever's coming up for you. Well, the first thing, the first thing that's come up for me, Cam, is the fact that I'm deeply missing Australia right now because the when I came back from my last real international trip, it was February of 2020, and COVID was hitting, and I was coming back from Australia. And I used to go down there like every quarter for about three years. So I, I made 12 trips there over the last three or four years. I miss you. I miss your flat whites um, and I miss all my <laughs> friends there. Uh, so that's what's coming up for me first and foremost. Secondly, man, thank you for having me on the show. Uh, my name is Dominic Cortuccio. I'm the co-host of the Great Man Within podcast. I run a community of men um, and masterminds for men who are looking to seek their purpose, live the best version of themselves. And I focus particularly on a type of guy who's kind of achieved a certain level of success in his life, has everything he thought he wanted on paper, um, but then feels restless on the inside. Like he, he knows he's capable of more, doesn't know how to get at it. He's typically lone wolfed his life, you know, like kind of gone out and achieved on his own, doesn't have a lot of um, communities that he's been a part of, of men that he really trusts that take him to this next level or inspire him. And one of the bigger parts of the journey that we take a lot of guys on is what is what does it mean to be a man? You know, your definition of masculinity and looking at some of the buried parts of your life, which obviously include sexuality. And uh, like I was just saying to you before we were started recording, 
um, a big part of my awakening and a big part of my story is I spent four years in Sex Addicts Anonymous recovery between 2013 and 2017. Um, that was like one of the biggest wake-up calls in my life about doing inner work. And since then, I've been on a really healthy journey of like navigating my own sexuality. So I really appreciate what you stand for in this world. I've read a lot of your stuff and I've been following you for a little while now. And um, it's men like you who teach things that I needed to, to rewrite the narrative of my sexual history. So thank you. Yeah, thanks for sharing, man. And uh, there's a couple of things that I wanted to dive into and, and just kind of explore um, with you based on what you've just shared. But the first thing I wanted to ask is, what were you doing coming to Australia so many times, man? What was it that kept on bringing you back other than the flat whites? Yeah, <laughs> well, it's primarily the flat, the flat whites. <laughs> and then it was the, the people. I love the people down. Uh, so I, I went to this program called Thought Leaders Business School run by uh, Matt Church and Peter Cook. And it was a program that helps entrepreneurs unpack their intellectual property and turn it into keynote speeches, training programs, coaching programs. I spent my the first 15 years of my career in financial services. And that was the corporate world, working for a Fortune 100 company. And when I decided that like a bigger calling was coming to me around helping men right do this work that we just talked about, that I would need some level of community and some, some um, program that I could learn from to help me get my business off the ground fast versus like flailing around and trying all this errors, you know, trial and error stuff. So the best program in the world that I found was in Australia, Thought Leaders Business School. It's world-class. I was the first crazy American to fly around the world at like four times a year. And then, and then a whole bunch of other people started to do it. So they, they kind of hold me out as the poster boy of, hey, one insane person will do this. So here's a calling to the other crazies out there. Nice. Yeah, yeah beautiful, man. Well, I um, I wanted to to jump into the the sex addiction and the the journey behind that as well because I I don't think it's something that I've talked about at all, really, um, on my podcast and and really not on my my social media platforms at all. So I'm I'm curious to dive into that a little bit with you and um I'm open for you sharing as little or as much as you feel comfortable as well. Like I, I get that it's probably a, a vulnerable and tender issue, but um, I guess my initial question is what was it that, well, what was the kind of straw that broke the camel's back that made you realize I need to, I, I need to go to rehab. I need to go to a, you know, some, I need to get some help. Great question. So December 28th, 2012, um, my girlfriend and I flew into uh uh, Boulder, Colorado, Denver, Colorado, drove to Boulder where we were going to go spend the new year together. And we we're going to go skiing in places like Breckenridge and Aspen. Now this was, maybe I was like 33 at the time. I had never let a woman get close enough to me in my life to actually fall in love with somebody. I'd never felt that feeling of love. I'd heard songs sung about what love felt like. I watched movies where I could see what love felt like, but I never felt it on my inside until this woman. And yet even though I loved this woman, I had these secret behaviors behind her back where I'd be sexting other women where um, in, in three different instances, I had cheated on her. And on December 28th, 2012, we fly into Colorado. We check into the St. Julian Hotel. I go to the bathroom to take like a shower, rinse off the flight. I come out of the bathroom. She's standing at the door holding my cell phone in her hand and she's pale complete like a ghost in the face. And she throws the phone at me and runs out of the, the hotel. 
And when I looked at the, the screen on the phone, she had opened to one of the text message threads with one of the women who I'd been sexting with. And it was as heartbreaking as you could possibly imagine, right? Like all the gory details of all these things. And that was just one of probably 12 conversations that were just like that on my phone. Now, Kim, like leading up to that experience, um, there had been times over the last like three to six months leading up to that experience where I'd started to question, is there something wrong with me? Yeah, that was the question I started asking because in my life, everything was together on the page, like on the surface, right? I just said that I'd spent 15 years in corporate America. At that time, I was a VP, a young guy with a lot of responsibility. I was well-respected at work. My life was in integrity in all these areas, except for the one in my sexual life where a lot of, a lot of my behaviors were cloaked in darkness. And so I started like looking up these questions online, like Googling, am I a sex addict? And I came across these um, questionnaires that you could take. And the reason why I never took action after taking these questionnaires was some of the responses were like, yeah, you got a problem, right? Like it, it consumed a lot of my time, my energy. I would go to great lengths to secure sex. It would consume me. But then there were a whole bunch of other questions like, that led down some of these like dark paths of like maybe exposing yourself or, you know, doing things with like minor, like, like really like second, third degree stuff that I was like, no, like no way, you know, that kind of, I don't even want to be like in that category. So I never even took a step for, further in, in taking it seriously until the woman who I loved threatened to leave. And um, out of desperation to save the relationship I answered Sex Addicts Anonymous um, versus me going in, like really wanting to work on myself. I went in to save the relationship, but very shortly thereafter, I realized it was a, it was a deep inner journey that I had to go on and one that um, changed the course of my life. Mm. Yeah, thanks for sharing, man. And there's um, like, there's a couple of conversations and a couple of directions that we could take this and, and we'll probably get into a few of them um, as we continue. But like the first thing that, that I guess I wanted to explore with you is, um, and this is just, I guess my own curiosity, cause I don't really, I'm not really well versed in the whole, um, addiction space, but, um, I know because I've the addiction runs in my family, specifically substance abuse, um, and alcoholism is that model of, of addiction is like, you know, once you, once you are recovered and you're recovering, addict, I suppose, for the rest of your life, you don't then, well, for the most part, from what I understand, you don't partake in that substance again, right? And you and you stay sober for the rest of your your life. Uh, at least that's my very minimal understanding of, of that type of addiction model. Um, but I presume that after you've gone through rehabilitation, after you've gone through you know, sex addictions, uh, Sex Addicts Anonymous, you're, you're going to have sex again, right? And so, what does a relapse look like, I suppose, is what I'm getting at here as a sex addict? Yeah, I think you're hitting the core of, of something major here, Cam. And there's there's um, there's a fair amount of uh, pushback on whether sex addiction is actually a thing. And there, there there's some like there there's some literature out there about like, sex addiction is not the same as a substance addiction. And you're absolutely right. Like when it comes to alcohol or drugs, drug addictions, like you just have to stop and never do those things again. Like that that abstinence is the solution. When you're talking about like an eating disorder 
or you know, when it comes to food, you still have to eat again. And when it comes to sex, presumably you want to be intimate again. And one of the big troubles that I found in the recovery program was I didn't find a lot of examples of what healthy sexuality looked like. You know, one of the things I loved about Sex Addicts Anonymous was it helped me to find it was it was visible and they have an incredible support network. You know, I could walk to, to a gazillion meetings here in New York City, incredibly supportive group with a lot of literature to help me stop my bottom line behaviors. Bottom line behaviors are like the worst of your behaviors, your chronic acting out behaviors. And for me at the time, it was, you know, stepping out on, on the woman I loved, also pursuing women who are in committed relationships was a big pattern of mine because that was something that I could see as like a barrier to intimacy. Like I wouldn't, ha- like I knew they wouldn't leave their partner, which allowed me to keep a safe distance, you know, like those kinds of things. Sex Addicts Anonymous or sex addiction recovery programs allowed for me to get the help that I needed. But two years into recovery, where like that kind of was, all that stuff was long gone. Where I started to struggle was I I hit this plateau of not knowing what healthy sexuality looked like because most of sexuality in those rooms and those programs was looked at kind of like through the lens of pathology. So for example, if I was walking down a street in New York City and I see a beautiful woman and all of a sudden I'm just like, wow, take her in. In, 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 In the coaching I would get there, it's, you just objectified a woman, you know, make amends and, and say you're sorry, kind of like make amends internally and then move on from that. And over time, it started to kind of reinforce this guilt and shame pattern about some of these like natural sexual feelings I had inside of me, which actually is what like caused my addiction to begin with. Like from, you know, as a kid, Catholic school upbringing, you know, sex was a sin, sex was was something taboo in my household. Natural desires and urges that came up were automatically labeled bad, labeled sinful. And so I always had to hide them. And as I got into recovery, deeper elements of recovery, I felt a lot of that same energy. So I looked around the rooms and I was like, where are my wise elders who have been in recovery for five years, 15 years, 20 years, who, who like have this vibrant, healthy relationship with their sexuality? I couldn't find anyone. Everyone was still struggling. Everyone still seemed to see their sexuality with more of a negative than, than like something that's life-giving and vibrant. So I had to leave Sex Addicts Anonymous after four years to go and find people like you and others who had built like their lives around healthy sexual connections, Tantra, um, you know, learning orgasms, multi-orgasmic states. And I'm like, how come these people have like, can do that? And I can't like, is there, is there some limiting belief? And so over the last four years, that's been my journey has really been like shedding the layers, shedding. I'd no longer identify as an addict. And for me, so that's a long winding way to answer your question, which is when I, a relapse for me is very minor now, Cam, and what a relapse really looks like for me, and I wouldn't even call it a relapse, it's when I bring my neediness or anxiety or like I've got a hole that I'm trying to fill by plugging into someone else's sexual energy and I'm trying to extract it, that is what... Um, like a quote relapse would look like for me. Um, 
where a lot of like non-addicts do that all the time and don't even know they're doing it, but I at least have that awareness now. So um, I'm grateful for having had to go through that journey because I can see when that energy is showing up versus like my king energy that I know you teach about, you know, like that kind of bringing my fullness to my partner. Um, so my journey has been has been quite a fruitful one to, to, to give me that depth. Mm, that's a great answer, man. And I, I appreciate the subtleties and nuance in your answer as well. Right, because it is a, I find it a really fascinating conversation because I'm a little bit against, I probably lean towards the like, it, it's not the same as addiction. So, yeah, as a substance addiction, so we probably shouldn't be using the term addiction. We should be using a different label kind of for it um, because it's, you know, you're not ingesting a exogenous chemical and that's altering your chemistry. So, I'm, I'm a bit more like, I think there's more nuance to the conversation. Um, so, I appreciate the, the answer that you gave and re kind of, defining addiction i suppose and um and kind of creating a bit of a broader layperson's definition i think is is probably what's necessary and it kind of reminds me of russell brand and the way that he approaches addiction as well and i'm wondering was there a was there a 12-step program as part of sex addicts anonymous was that the whole model that they used 12-step program yeah it was a little bit modified i mean like some, some of the languaging was modified instead of uh the blue book we had the green book uh so but but the 12 steps are exactly the same and uh and, you know, one of the things that was, it was, it was empowering when I entered the program, but disempowering as I like was in the program was this concept of, I am powerless over this addiction. You know, you go in, the first thing you say at every meeting is my name is Dominic and I'm a sex addict. Affirming like identity, I'm a sex addict. And there was a time where I believed for the rest of my life that this was something I had to manage or this disease, you hear, you hear, you hear people personify their addiction um, like it's a person, it's a thing inside of them. And I was like that for a couple of years, but then there were some people in my life who kind of came in and challenged me. They're like, why, why do you believe that? No, you're not like that. Like you just, and, and, and as I started to challenge my own identity of who I was and to take on new identities and to stop labeling this thing as powerless, that I actually have infinite power over this. I just needed the right structures and the teachers that I was able to set that aside um, and now the, 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 the ironic thing, Kim, is I, I never intended to talk openly about this stuff, but when I talk to civilians, people who have never been like, you know, into a 12 step program, when I told them about all this work and they could see like, you know, like the changes in me, all the men who I spoke to had some form of guilt or shame around their sexual behaviors they're watching too much porn or they're watching porn that they're embarrassed about, or they lose their erection in bed, or they pop off too early, or they think their dick is too small, like all this stuff. And when I, when I, when I started kind of going first and telling about all this stuff shamelessly, then they were like, whoa, we need forums to talk about this stuff, which is why, you know, launch the podcast, do these masterminds. And, uh, and, and it's been, it's been brilliant to witness how many guys are just like now hungry to talk about this stuff. Yeah. That resonates with me, man. And, and I, like the bane of my existence is like trying to get the fellas to come to a workshop or to come to a talk or to come to an event. Um, and so like, I, I just like am marketing and doing all this stuff to trying to entice them to come. But once they're there and I kind of open up and start you know talking about the sort of stuff man i can't get them to shut up you know like they they're yearning to kind of talk about it but it's just that that first hurdle of actually going to the event right of actually seeking out the help of actually going to to something where there is a forum to talk about it um and and that kind of leads me into this this question that i have and it's probably a bit of a loaded question um a lot of assumptions around it but is there um 
in the four years that you spent um, you know, in, in Sex Addicts Anonymous, was there, was there, was it predominated by men? Was there more men than other genders there? It was, it was almost exclusively men. Um, and, and, and so there, there, there were two programs that, 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 that were offered at the church. It was Sex Addicts Anonymous, and then there was Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. So it was SAA, which was what I was a part of, which is like almost 100% men all the time. And then Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, which was, I think, like, like a mix of men and women. And so you would have people who were, you know, that, that had a lot of sex issues, but it was a lot of intimacy and codependency that you saw in those rooms. Yeah. Yeah. What do you, what do you think is the reason why it was more men than women in these scenarios? Yeah. Uh, that's a good question. Yeah. So one of the things that I learned, so th th there's a great sex therapist uh, and people always laugh at his name because he's a sex therapist. And his name is Dr. David Lay. So yeah. Lay, yeah, um, second, he's I'm kind familiar of with named, David Lay. Right? Yep, yep. You are okay. Yeah. Uh, I really like Doctor Doctor Lay. Like, I, I didn't meet him until after I left Sex Acts Anonymous. And I was like, I wish he was my my therapist when when I when I when I hit bottom because like he he I think he speaks to a lot of this stuff that I'm talking about with you, like healthy sexuality and is addiction actually a thing? But um, he 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 says that men oftentimes find love and need, 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 need sex to feel loved. And like, there's this void in us quite a bit as, as like, you know, as, as boys, as men, we're often taught to like stuff down our feelings, stuff down our emotions. And the way that we get nurtured is through this like feeling of sex. That's just like, oh my gosh. I mean, like, here, here's a part of my story, man. I, like, I didn't, I, like, I didn't know what masturbation was. Uh, when I was 13 years old, my parents, like who were who were pretty vigilant about what we watched on television. I couldn't watch MTV. They didn't let me see like rated R movies, but they they made they tripped up once, and they left the movie White Men Can't Jump at home, like a VHS. VC. I'm 42 years old, right? So this movie with Wesley Snipes, Woody Harrelson, and God bless her, Rosie Perez, was left in my house. And there's this sex scene where Rosie Perez, like you know, topless, and she's hot, and I just like watched like when my parents were gone i put the vc the you know the vcr on hit the play button i'm sitting on this couch with my blue sweatpants on i got a boner and i, I play the video i rewind it i play it and rewind it i'm using the remote control my kind of rubbing myself i've never done this before i keep doing back and forth back and forth and then all of a sudden this energy builds inside of me and and it's like the like the force of a like a you know like a fire truck barreling down Broadway in New York City. And all of a sudden I black out and it's the supernova of explosions, like boom, 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 like top to bottom in my body. And then finally it stops. My eyes open, my pants are soaked and I have no idea what the hell just happened to me, but it was in incredible. And that was the day I discovered masturbation, which as a very nervous and, uh, and sensitive teenager became this like Pot, like I was sitting on a pile of heroin, this crank I could pull on at any time to, to, to help me numb out and navigate these feelings of emptiness or like worry or anxiety. So I did that like four or five times a day, Cam, every day for years. And that was the thing that allowed me to feel comfort, safety, security. And I think a lot of guys early on in their lives found safety, comfort, and security that they couldn't 
with like all those emotions they were told to stuff down um, through that mechanism. And that's why we saw a lot of guys using sex uh, that then manifested over a course of like many years of their lives end up in those rooms. Yeah. Yeah. That makes, um, makes sense, man. And it echoes my own sentiments as well. And I've shared this before is like the only, well, not the only, but one of the only avenues for men, straight men to get touch, right. To actually have physical intimacy is through sex. Like guys aren't hugging their mates. Guys aren't, you know, being touched and caressed, you know, by, by people in their lives. The only real outlet that guys have for it is, is, you know, sex is physical intimacy with their, their female partner. Um, and so a lot of guys, I mean, don't, aren't necessarily aware of that. And so they will, you know, they'll seek out sex, not necessarily for the, you know, for the sake of sex itself, but because it's, it's filling an underlying need for intimacy and for touch and for connection and for affection and for to you know to feel desired as well a lot of guys don't recognize this but they want to feel wanted as well a lot of guys just mask it and like sex is just this physical whatever you know no strings attached but deep down a lot of men want to know that they're wanted by their partners or by their sexual partners and so it's a there's a piece of validation in there as well for them um and seeking that out through sexual connection through sexual intimacy so i definitely i, I mean it was a loaded question when I asked you, because um, I kind of, you know, f- kind of think I know the answer, but um, I just wanted to see what you wanted to share, man, and and I totally agree with with what's going on. Yeah, I mean, you you nailed that hundred percent. I mean, like that that was exactly uh, one of the driving factors of of a lot of my sexual behavior for a long time, and um, and and so like I think a part of it is actually bringing some compassion to men who have maybe been labeled as players or you know labeled that, and and a lot of guys like you know drop their partners, drop the women or the men they're pursuing and, you know, don't treat them as well. But there is a part of them that is that, is that, is that empty part that's just seeking to be loved, you know, like to, to, to be nurtured. And we don't get it in, in so many areas of our lives for all the reasons that you mentioned. So there is a level of compassion that we, that I try to bring to the conversations that I have with men about this stuff. Mm, fantastic, man. And that's what I was going to ask is how do you bring your experiences, not only kind of as an addict, as someone who's gone through that experience, but then also gone through you know, SAA, how do you bring that into the work that you're doing today? Does it does it pop up at any stage? Is anything that you've learned kind of be kind of be you know transgressed into the work that you're doing now? What's the what's this dynamic? Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's a few things, right? Because because I don't teach um, I, I don't teach like sexual techniques. I don't teach. I'm not, not like a, a sex guru, but I but I am someone who likes to talk a lot about my own experience and and have a better conversations about sex and sexuality. So the way that it shows up in our work is, you know, on on the podcast that I run, the Great Man Within podcast. Um, there are a number of conversations I've led about. Uh, like two of our, I think our first episodes were called "The Making of a Sex Addict." And it's like a two-part series of my whole story, how I ended up where I did. And we use that as a way for men, any guy, to go back and go through like his sexual chronological life to look at like, hey, you know, how did you discover sex? You know, like what were your earliest um, sources of sex? And you ask that question for someone who's to for, a guy who's 40 years old right now, it's very different than someone who was 20 or or, 50, or 15 right now, right? I mean, like I discovered sex through a Playboy magazine, right? Trifold falls out, 
and I, there's like one static image that I could look at. 15 year old kid now is probably like, you know, getting fire blasted, you know, like fire hosed with browsers, porn hub, you know, gang bang videos, high streaming. That's a very different experience. That's like, you know, getting it intravenously injected versus just like, you know, taking one bite at a time. So, you know, I, I talk about these stories just to get, to kind of take guys through an awareness practice of how did you discover sexuality? Who are the, what were the forces that shaped your beliefs around sexuality? And we call these the three F's, you know, your faith or lack thereof, you know, like religion and what you learned or was it, you know, your family, your friends. And these were like three big forces in your life that consciously and unconsciously shaped your sexuality. So we take men through like their entire life, all the relationships they've been through, what their porn habits are, um, seeing where they're drifting with their behaviors. Most guys do not bring any level of intentionality or conscious thought to like, you know, their porn habits or masturbation habits. And so we, we just bring a heightened level of awareness there. And we've done a number of episodes on that. That's how it shows up in the work that we, that we do now. Yeah. Interesting, man. And I, I like the introduction of faith there as well, because this is a, a question that I wanted to ask um, is I know traditionally, historically, like the 12 step program, for example, has been, um, like, I think it was, it was religiously oriented, right? It was, it was a Christian program from what I understand. Yeah. And I'm, I'm wondering, yeah. did that, was that the same for your, I think you said your, your program was held at a church. So was that the same for your 12 step program? And is that something that you ascribe to? I guess I'm, I'm asking, are you religious? Are you Christian? Do you follow that kind of, um, doctrine? No, it's, it's a great question. So the, um, so it was hosted at a church, but it wasn't really, it, it wasn't like uh, religiously affiliated there. The roots in, in the program, I believe are. And one of the things that actually, uh, I had a lot of animosity towards was religion. And, and I blamed it for a lot of my behaviors because I grew up going to Catholic school for seven years, kindergarten to sixth grade. I was an altar boy, went to youth group. And there was so much negativity about sexuality. It's sinful. You're going to hell if you don't, you know, if you have sex before marriage, all these things. And that was my experience, right? And there was a lot more to say about religion, but I went off to college. I can make my own choices. And I started to just not go to church anymore. And I, there was a lot of anger I had towards the hypocrisy of what people were saying you should be doing and then how people were behaving. And, you know, it just, it rubbed me the wrong way. And for 15 years, I was spiritually homeless um, didn't subscribe to anything beyond myself. And I looked at people who were religious in nature or spiritual in nature. And I just thought that they were clowns. I thought that they were like rooked, you know, and I, and I, and I really judged that those people, uh, I really judged people. And then I get into the 12 step program and they're asking me to, to turn my faith over, to turn my belief over to a higher power. And that was like, you know, step number two. And I'm, I'm already hitting a roadblock here. I'm like, no fucking way. Right. I'm, you know, and, 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 and what like my guidance was to just act as if there was something bigger than you, even if it's just like this community of men in the room, right? Like, like, like subscribe to the community of men, just be bigger than you. And they taught me the serenity prayer, right? There's this prayer to, you know, that I would say over and over again to just kind of step outside of, of myself. And I started saying that every morning, and over the course of time, what I started to find was my animosity towards religion and faith and spirituality started to dissolve. I started picking up Buddhist texts, you know, which felt really practical and, and, and aligned with my life. And I started practicing Buddhism. 
And over the course of time in my recovery, I found deep spiritual practice, started meditations. I've went on meditation journeys. I have a meditation practice for eight years now. I am deeply spiritual. I do believe in a God. I don't believe in a Christian faith. Um, but what I will say, Kim, this is really interesting. The rooms of Sex Addicts Anonymous were filled, filled with people who grew up in hyper-religious environments. You know, I'm talking about there were tons of Hasidic Jewish people. There were lots of like, you know, overburdened Christians or Catholics um, because of how rigid and how, um, how much uh, there was so much rigidity and fear that, that a lot of us grew up in. And then when we stumbled across our own sexuality, we, we immediately labeled ourselves bad or wrong or sinful or perverted. Um, and so we kept it in the shadows for many years of our lives. And, and so the rooms are full of, of people who grew up in hyper-religious environments. Yeah, man, that's interesting. And this brings up like a, another question I have around um, the addiction label, right? With regards to sexuality, I guess it's like not just sexuality, but it's like a behavioral like addictions, right? And there's, a, there's controversy over behavioral addictions like porn and gambling and sex for, and shopping and things like eating. So um, my... My kind of question here is, and maybe you can um, shed a bit of light on this, is do you think that the, um, I guess this is a couple of questions wrapped up into one, I suppose, so I'll try and be concise. But do you think that like the hyper-religiosity of like these guys in these groups, um, it, like do you think they were just engaging in normal, you know, sexual behavior, that they were on the kind of normal spectrum, but the fact that they were like really hyper-religious and all the shame and guilt that came with that made them think that they were sexually addicted, even though they were probably engaging in, in a regular amount of sex. Does that make sense, that question? It's really interesting you ask that question because we go back to Dr. David Lay. He'll say, studies have shown that sex addicts don't have more or more perverted sex than regular people. It's the shame that they feel as a result of it. And, um, and so like, if you were to take a, a cross-section of the population of people who are labeled as sex addicts, and then a cross-section of the population, you know, including everybody who's not labeled a sex addict, there's a whole, like, like we're kind of on par with each other, but the sex addicts feels, the sex addict feels guilt or shame. Um, and, and in part, it could be because of what we learned was acceptable or not. Um, and, and certainly by the way, in the, in the sex addicts world, like there's a lot of perverted behavior. There's a lot of, um, unlawful behavior there too. No question. There's also unlawful behavior in people that aren't sex addicts too. That'll never be labeled sex addicts that just, you know, did something once or twice. That's, you know, un deplorable, but, but yes, like it, uh, so I think that, I hope that answers your question where and to make it specific for me, you know, growing up. Like I was just masturbating, you know, like innocently, you know, to, to, to like Victoria's secret catalogs and, and like, you know, really harmless shit. Um, like there, there wasn't anything I was doing to harm anybody, but in my mind, I was like killing a kitten every time I jerked off, you know, like I, I was going to hell. And then that, that, that takes its toll over thousands of reps, you know, which, you know, in a couple of years, I got thousands of reps in. And then eventually like it starts to mushroom out into like real women and then, you know, and then behavior start to morph over decades where then I end up cheating on the woman I love. Then I end up, you know, going after women who are, um, who are in committed relationships. And I traveled so far away from who I thought I was in my core 
you know, like, and I, and I, and I was trustworthy and upstanding in all of these other areas of my life. The one area where I broke all my rules and where I would set a standard for myself and then constantly step over it was this one area of my life where um, it was in the shadows and, and in sex and in, in all the 12 step programs, they always say, you're only as sick as your secrets. And I had a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really great answer, man. And, and it speaks to like the, I think you, you mentioned it before is like, um, I'll paraphrase, but it was like, it, it's only if you're distressed by your sexual behavior, right? Like there's people out there that are, you know, having the same amount of sex as a quote unquote sex addict, but they're fine with it. They're, it doesn't bother them at all. Right. But it's, if it's, if it's distressing to you and if it's something you want to change, then that's when that label could probably be applied to you. And, and I think there's a broader definition that we probably won't get into about, okay, well, what's the criteria? How are we labeling people? Like I, there's a lot of problems around that. I, I know from, you know, the diagnostic point of view as well. Um, and, and psychotherapy has a lot to, to say about that. But um, yeah, I think that's just a, a really interesting insight, man. Cause I, I do think there's this, I mean, stigma and taboo and perception about sex addicts right that they're uncontrollable and that that there's like this um they're perverted right and you know, i think that was the word you used and they're they're deviant and all this sort of stuff and really there's this big cross-section that are very similar cam yeah, i mean you're hitting some big stuff here and you know one thing i would just even pose for your audience is when you hear the phrase sex addict what do you picture you know, like, like what's the vision that you get of, of the person? Like even just visually, what do you get? And then what do you assume their behaviors are? You know, cause sex addiction has, has a lot of different, like you say, stigma. It's, you know, when you think about someone who's an alcoholic, um, it used to be considered like a, like a, a mental disease or something broken about you. Now, someone who's a recovered alcoholic, we celebrate. Sex addiction is this like really cloaked, like mysterious world where, you know, a lot of people picture, picture a dude in a trench coat at like, uh, you know, at a playground um, or someone, you know, maybe even far worse do like, you know, physically harming other people. And there's a huge spectrum, right? I mean, like, like my compulsive behaviors were really along the lines of acting out on the woman that like I loved. How many people do that? I mean, like, you know, like, like if you were to do a poll of how many people have cheated on someone in their lives like more people than not. Right. And, um, but like, I felt like a, like a guilt and a shame about that. And here's one more thing that, that you made me think about is one of, um, one very well-respected sex expert in the space is Dr. Jana. And she's a friend of mine. She's an NYU professor who teaches about human sexuality. And the, re the way I got to know her is Dr. Jana is the proponent of destigmatizing casual sex. She has a lot of it. She's had gazillions more sexual partners than I've had. And, and she is an authority. Like she has a TED talk that has like three or mil three million or something like that views about it. And the way that we got into contact was she was running a panel on like uh, uh, reducing the stigma around slut shaming and including men, right? Like men. And so someone was like, oh, I know Dominic, he's a sex addict and he talks openly about it. He'd be happy. And when she and I had the conversation and she started learning about my sexual life, I was like, nowhere near prolific enough in my sexual and my sexual exploits. She's like, you're boring as fuck. I can't bring you on the show. You're like, you're not a slut at all. And so, and so, you know, it goes back to your question of, you know, so much of this had to do with my perception of what was right, what was wrong. And it's also subjective, 
you know? Yeah, yeah. And I, I love to circle back to something you shared earlier. Um, the reason why you left, uh, one, one of the reasons anyway that you shared about like not having a healthy model for your sexual expression, like not, not looking around you and not seeing any guys going like, hey, this is my sexuality. I'm fucking proud of it. I'm proud to, you know, and I enjoy it and I want to express it and I want to live it. Um, I think there, there, there's like a really, you know, this kind of like schism between how we think about male sexuality particularly. Um, I think there's this like cultural narrative that like men's sexuality or that the male expression of sexuality is very um, monstrous and um, violent and aggressive, right? Um Maybe there's some words that are less evocative than that, but um, that's the, that's the kind of feeling that I get when I talk to people about male sexuality is that it's you know this perception that it's you know um, it's the perpetrator, it's the it's the violator, right? Um, and I think that as well kind of leads into this conversation that we're having about like labeling and and the reason why a lot of men are, uh, are you know probably more often than not labeled um, sex addicts compared to women. It's because of this idea that we have around male sexuality not being, it's not a healthy thing to express, right? And so, um, and so something that I, I really try to do is like offer an alternative way of expressing your masculinity through your sexuality, like just model a, a different way of exploring and, and, um, and yeah, showing up in your, in your sexual self. Like that example that you used before uh, about objectifying women, right? Like if you see an attractive person, it doesn't have to be a woman, if it's an attractive person walking down the street and you get turned on by that person, like, you know, according to the, the model that you were, you were talking about, it's like, that's, you've just objectified that person. You've got to make amends, right? Like you've almost like, almost like you've sinned and now you've got to repent. Um, again, getting to that religious model. Um, but, you know, I think there's, a, a, I've, I've spoken about this before, but there's a distinction between objectification and sexualization, right? We, we sexualize people all the time. You know, we're human beings. That's kind of what we do. You know, we see an attractive person. We go, whoa, that person is attractive. I've got this feeling in my body. That's amazing. Like you, you're alive. You're a, you're a red blooded, you know, hearts beating. You're a conscious person that's experiencing attraction. That's what it means to be a human being, right? So you, it's sexualizing. There's nothing wrong with that. You men do it to women, women do it to men, gay men do it to gay men, straight men do it to straight men. I've got a huge man crush on Jason Statham, for example. I sexualize that guy every time he comes on screen. Um, he's a gorgeous looking yeah. man. Um, but but when, it, when, you get, like, when you cross that line and it comes to like objectification, which is like where you treat that person solely based on your sexualization of them, right? It's like it's, it's where you, you kind of take it to that next step and you and i see a lot of guys doing this particularly is like and it's wrapped up with entitlement as well guys like you know get upset if their sexualization of a woman for example i use the heterosexual example isn't like um reciprocated you know like if if he if he like pays her a compliment and says hey you you, you look sexy um you know just out of nowhere whatever it is just to use that simple example and she doesn't respond positively right? Or she isn't interested in him, then he'll get upset and he'll be like, oh, well, f- you know, fuck you and all this sort of stuff. And like, because there's this entitlement wrapped up in men's, you know, ego and sexuality and the way masculinity is being conditioned to go like, you know, we expect them to, to, or expect a woman to, to like respond positively to a comment. Like it's, um, yeah. So there's, there's a lot to unpack in what I've just kind of shared, but, um, I just wanted to like bring that into the conversation because I think it's really important. 
Uh, yeah. And, 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 and so like something that you brought up at the beginning of that, which is super important is we, uh, and I'm going to keep going back to the Dr. David Laywell, cause he, he has some like really insightful stuff. He says, we hear about men's sexuality when it's a problem. That's like, that's when we hear about men's sexuality. And he goes, for example, we know a lot more about Donald Trump and his sexuality than we do about Barack Obama's, right? Like if you look at the last two US presidents, right? President Trump, it was all about like grabbing by the pussy and, you know, the Stormy Daniels and also Barack Obama, we have no, we have no clue. I mean, what, what his sexuality is like. We know that he's faithful to, or, you know, as far as we can see Michelle Obama, but we don't know anything about it because apparently it's not a problem. And Dr. Lay also asks, who are your sexual role models? What the hell? You know, have you ever conceived that question? Like you can't have a sexual role model really because a healthy male sexuality is not really ever on display. And, you know, it took me a long time to really think about maybe like, I don't know, maybe Will Smith and Jada Pinkett, you know, the two of them have been like madly in love for a long time, but also have had a lot of ups and downs. And there was always like the, the kind of jealousy he had for Tupac because she was also in love with Tupac and how he felt like insecure about that. They've had an open relationship and, you know, but I, you go beyond that. I don't know much more about too many other men's sexuality. And I've been thinking recently, Cam, about how would I start to share my healthy sexuality journey? What would that even look like? You know, do I take, do I take a picture of myself like nude and, and do I post that? Do I, what are some of the things that I do to feel sexual that don't involve a woman or masturbation? I don't even, you know, sometimes I don't even know what those things are, but like, you know, some things are, I was just thinking about this the other day, like my beard. Like I love growing out a little bit of my beard and then trimming it because feeling like the like the the whiskers on my face make me feel kind of rugged, like a man, like it reminds me of my masculinity. And then the trimming of it makes me feel like I'm disciplined, like I'm caretaking myself. You did a whole thing on pubes, right? Like uh, your Instagram thing, which was awesome. Like, and I was actually, con the, the, I even commented on it, pubes to, to manscape or not to manscape. And I remember that like when, when I started manscaping a decade and a half ago in preparation for a woman to come over and maybe like, you know, have, I'd receive oral sex and it seemed like the compassionate thing to do. So she wouldn't get like my pubes all caught up in her teeth that that became kind of like the, the ritual. But now, even when I don't really have an active sexual partner and I can go weeks or months without sex, like I've gone now, I will shave my pubes every so often just to feel like sexual again. And that doesn't necessarily need to la like to lead to a masturbation session or pornography or anything like that. But there are certain things that I do now that tap into my sexual energy. And then how can I show that, you know, like through my social channels or my podcasts so that other guys can be like, well, what the fuck do I do? You know, what, what do I do that makes me feel? Most of us probably only think our sexuality can be tapped when there's like another body or available or a fantasy or pornography, but what about all those other moments where, you know, where it's just you? Um, and, and that, that's a newer realm that I've just started to discover, but it's, it's been a promising one. And I, and I do want to, I, this is the first time I've ever really talked about it openly, but I do want to speak more about it. Yeah, man. Yeah. There's uh, I did a, a, another post and I spoke about um, like what you wear, you know, like, like I, 
for a long time I had long hair and my beard was like really big and scraggly and like I was just wearing similar to like what I'm wearing now this is a hemp shirt but I was wearing like these big flowing shirts and marla beads and um just like really fitting that stereotypical image of the yoga tantra teacher and um and yeah it kind of worked for me but I went through a big you know personal rebranding uh and then also business rebranding as well um shaved my head and, and and started wearing more fitted shirts and suits and ties and you know nice belts and nice shoes and and I was like fuck I feel I feel good you know what I mean like I, I I like the way that I look in a suit you know it's got like I'm just looking in the mirror I don't I'm not asking people's opinions I'm not asking strangers you know I'm like no I like the way that I look you know like it's, it's dependent upon me not upon someone else and I'm like damn I, f- I feel good you know now that I you know I'm appreciating my own body I'm appreciating my own um, you know the, the clothes that I'm wearing, the, the the threads, the drip, right, so to speak, and um, and, and so like a that makes me feel you know good in my own body, and feeling good in my own body like makes me feel pleasurable, makes me feel you know sexual, makes me feel like a like a like a guy, like a dude, um, and and it, you know that's a healthy expression of my you know masculinity and sexuality, I find. But then it's also like the next layer to that is like, okay, well, why do I feel good? when I'm wearing a suit, for example, why didn't I feel this way when I was wearing a flowing shirt and had long hair and had, you know, marla beads on, or even before that, um, this is when I was actually living in America, I used to dress, um, like Russell Brand used to dress in like the early two thousands. I used to like, I had long hair. Um, I had a kind of trimmed beard, but I was wearing like heaps of necklaces, heaps of rings. I had like a tight fitted black shirt on with a tight waistcoat over it. I had this like really, um, like a disco ball belt on tight, like leather pants with like these big black boots, just, you know, look like, you know, Russell Brand. And that was kind of the look that I was going for as well, because I was in, in terms of sexual role models at that time, Russell Brand was my sexual role model. Um, and, and I, and, and so I've shared this on like other podcasts, um, but I went through a series well, a couple of years of kind of, you know, exploring what, sexuality was for me and the only people the only men actually i won't say people because i was looking up to men particularly the only men that were you know embodying their sexuality at all and i don't want to say this was healthily embodying it but they were embodying it were pickup artists right so my sexual role models at that time were these guys that were in the quote-unquote seduction community which is like the you know such a veneer for their gross underbelly of stuff that they do um but that was that was the guys that I looked up to, and I feel like a lot of guys at some point have come across the pickup artist guys, who have come across the like you know the gross dating coach guys, or those guys that express their sexuality in a very unhealthy way, um, and like the, and that perpetuates this idea that you know male sexuality is problematic and is aggressive and is you know um, and is monstrous, right? That that word comes up from David French, the um, journalist, but. Yeah, so that, that's kind of like a bit of my my unpacking that I'm slowly doing is like I've gone from, you know, that look to then like feeling good in my body by, you know, dressing up in the yoga guru type way. And now I feel like really good in myself, kind of finding a, a happy medium between those two looks, I suppose, with some more fitted shirts and like feeling quite, quite proud of how I look. 
Well, two things, man. First of all, you look great in a suit. And then like you know, the one that you have on your Instagram, like, you know, it's like, it's like tailored, beautiful. And I have a lot of respect there. Second thing is I'm curious, Russell Brand, right? What was it about him and his sexuality that you were like, he's, he's my role model. Hmm. So the, the, the two major things that like, you know, I, I guess I would say I aspired to at the time were, um, like he, he's like a tall, skinny guy, right? Like he's not stereotypically masculine. You know what I mean? Like he's almost quite androgynous. He had long hair, would wear like a little bit of makeup, was you know, quite flamboyant, um, which really struck a chord with me. I'd never really been like a stereotypical jock. Uh, like I, I, was an, I was an athlete in a sense that I played, you know, sport, but my masculinity was never that like alpha, you know, quote unquote alpha um, masculinity. So like that really struck a chord with me that he was quite quirky and outspoken and things like that. So that was like the first thing that I like really um, resonated with me. And then the second thing was like, he was confident and open with his sexuality as well. Like uh, I used to watch a lot of his stand up, and um, like he would talk about going down on women and he would talk about like um, having threesomes and he would talk about like just being sexually confident. And um, I think uh, he was in the early 2000s, um, uh, awarded Shagger of the Year by one of like the Sun newspapers or like the Guardian or whatever those newspapers are in the UK. But he was like awarded three three years in a row. He was given like Shagger of the Year. Um, and, he's, and he talks about that in his stand-up as well. So there was like this confidence um, that was like acknowledged, like he was a sexual man and he was like okay with it. And people were like, he's a sexual man, right? And he's, you know, and he's getting awards for it, you know? And so it was like this, like, damn, this guy's like, you know, um, he's good at it. And so th- those are the two things that kind of really stood out to me was like the, the way he was portraying his masculinity and then just the openness that he had with his sexuality and, and you know, like uh, there's, there's things that he says in his stand-up shows, which are just like legitimately good sex advice, you know, like you're just like, damn, that was actually a pretty good piece of advice that you'd find a sex therapist kind of sharing. Um, so th- there was that, that tied into it as well. So, yeah, it, it sounds like, um, you know, as, as we're thinking about like, how do we bring, how do we bring healthy sexuality out uh, of our own so that other men can see it and witness it? It's first of all, like having the conversation about it, being open about it. Um, and then there's a certain element of style that comes with it too. You know, I mean, like a bit, like the first place you started was how he looked and then how he dressed. And I think there's an opportunity as like, as I'm thinking about how I bring this out is what are the things that allow me to feel sexual when I'm wearing it, like, or sexy. And a lot of guys don't think about like being sexy, right? Like women are sexy. Um, and I'm, I'm speaking from the heterosexual males perspective. Cause that's like, you know, the, 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 the journey that I've been on, but like for most of my life, I never really thought about that. I could be sexy. Um, but that's not that, but that's actually the opposite is when I, when I dress well, when I trim my beard to a certain length, when I shave my balls, like, you know, these are the things that kind of like trigger feeling, okay, I'm ready to go. Um, certain soaps that I use, you know, if like, they're like, you know, great smelling soaps, it's like, I smell good. I'm ready to rock. And to be able to put that out for other guys to take a look at and say, and ask the questions for themselves, what makes me feel sexy? Um, share the stories that other guys can reflect on in the bedroom and outside the bedroom. Cause you're right, man. Like the only examples that are really out there. And I remember when Neil Strauss's book, the game came out. You know, I, I look at that book and I read it and I got like swept up in it for like a few months or something like that too. That book is like the BP oil spill 
of dating advice. It's like, you know, you remember when BP, like that oil spill that went on for like 30 days or some shit like that? Eventually you put the lid on it, but the damage is done. Like you're never going to clean up all that oil that's but like that, that's the muck that's out there. Um if if we aren't louder than the dating community than, than, than some of those pickup artists, if we aren't more visible, if we aren't more um relatable, then guys are going to continue to go to, to to those guys. And that's that that's that's a disservice. So we almost have a responsibility to do this better. Yeah. Yeah. That that strikes a call with me, man. I just watched a documentary last night, as a matter of fact. Um called the pickup game just 2018 documentary and it um interviews mystery the eric von markovich the guy who is best friends with neil strauss in in the book and um it interviews ross jeffries the the kind of founder of the whole pickup industry from the 1980s and um and these like lonely old guys you know that's what they are now you know and the the, the ross jeffries character or the guy um you know has like he lives alone in a little apartment with a couple of cats and yeah yeah and he and he's just like you know any any you know and he's defeated he's like fuck i i opened up this can of worms you can't put the genie back in the bottle so to speak you know he's like i've started this and i distanced myself from it because i just saw what happened and he's like yeah i just you know like there's he doesn't necessarily say it out loud but you just see the regret in the way that he's talking and and on his face and and yeah it was just a very interesting documentary not, not the greatest documentary in the world but it was just interesting having a, an experience i've got a per, first-hand experience kind of in that community um way back when i was uh, um about 10 15 years ago so uh yeah there's a just a bit of bit of a plug i suppose for that documentary if people you know if men are resonating with this and they want to kind of like see the end where you know where that takes you you know there's the there's a couple of interviews with these fellas and um yeah you just see like the the detriment that this you know that that expression of your sexuality gets you i suppose yeah yeah man and uh and and, and still there's so many guys out there who are seeking you know like their their hearts are broken they've been rejected by women they just want to feel some semblance of power and then you know the pickup community is really like feed off of that right they they, they take like the the the, the um vulnerable and then they feed him with this like this crap and and then you can end up like Ross Jeffries. And and that's why I like I love what you do with your program around to the one that you're launching now. And I'm not sure when this when this episode is going to launch, but you're talking about perform better than a porn star. And when when you really look at the copy that you've written and like behind that, like it's 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 not all about like you know, can you last longer than a porn star? It's really about intimacy, connection. What are the like the porn stars are are just trying to like stay hard as long as they can they're like they're moving like they're, they're they're taking their minds out of wherever they are versus connecting with the person that's there but like someone who's stumbling across your work maybe like their only model for sexuality is what they've seen in porn and and i talk about that like on the on, on the podcast as well is like like what the, the analogy I can make about this game is like when I was a little kid, there was nothing better in the world for me than baseball. I loved American baseball. When I was eight years old, I would watch my favorite baseball players like Don Mattingly and Ken Griffey Jr. And that's what greatness looked like. And I aspired to that. But when I was a kid, I was also surrounded by like eight-year-olds down the street, like Timmy, who I also knew like couldn't hit a fastball. And I could compare myself to Timmy and have some like basis of comparison as to like where I was in my development, I didn't have to compare myself to the major league hall of famers. 
when it comes to sex, the only person that you really get a chance to watch having sex other than yourself are these porn stars. Like you're, you're not watching a lot of like normal people having like, you know, like their slip ups or screw ups in bed or, you know, you're watching carefully curated, big dicked, um, choreographed, edited, you know, to crazy uh, camera angles, all this stuff. And it gives you this like really distorted view of what sexuality is. So when someone actually comes across, you know, like what your work it, like that, that hook of perform better than a porn star will get them in, but then you're Trojan horsing. But what you really want is all this other stuff. And let me show you to have way better sex than what you think you're seeing on, on TV there. Or on, yeah, your, your, you know, it's your, a great analogy, man. The Trojan horse analogy. I hadn't thought of it like that, but that's pretty much exactly what I'm doing. There's like, it's always clickbait. Like uh, the, the title is definitely you know, a clickbait title, but yeah, the Trojan horse of like, yeah, here's all this other amazing communication, intimacy, pleasure that they weren't expecting um, and really subverting the idea of performance. Yeah, that's that's the that's the crux of the course, man, is, um, and I'm glad you, you, you saw that as well because that's something that I... Uh, I do. I get asked about it a lot. People ask me like, oh, you, you're talking about all this sexuality, healthy sexuality stuff. And then you've got a course that's called Outperform Porn Star. Like, how you, how can you justify that? And I'm like, do you, have you even read like what the course is about? Do you even know what I teach in the course? So um, yeah, it's just an interesting little dynamic there. Um, I'm just mindful of time, my brother. And I was wondering, is there anything that you wanted to share with regards to maybe your own journey and whether guys feel like they're maybe on the same journey? Maybe they're a couple of years behind you and um, and some advice you might have for them? Yeah. You know, I would say the number one thing that, um, I, I say to more, more, more and more men is stop lone wolfing your life. And what I mean by that is like, you don't need more content guys. You need more community. I mean, how many more podcasts are you going to listen to? How many more books are you going to read? How many more influencers or experts are you going to follow? before you recognize that like what you're really searching for is a, like a tribe of guys who you feel like call you to a higher standard, who are on a path of personal development that you can trust that will, um, that will tell you when you're, you're, you know, when you're showing up like less than the best version of yourself, but also not kick your ass in the ways that you've been so used to. Like if so many guys are so used to being called out, called a pussy, you know, being emasculated, find an environment, find a community of guys that like are actually looking for something deeper. And if, if you're one of those guys, you know, the, that's what we're building with, with my community and the great man within podcast is a great place to get started. We got over a couple hundred episodes. I've got a Facebook group called the great man within podcast group. So just everything's great man within, right? So podcast, um, go to the Facebook group. We've got, I think five, close to 500 guys there now, who are going in there to talk about vulnerable stuff about their lives, like opening up about the real shit. And then if you want to do inner work and formalize your work in, in my community, we've got, um, we've got a mastermind, a digital mastermind of men around the world uh, called the great man within uh, digital mastermind. So you just, you just Googled great man within and it, that'll take you to the page where he has all the details. And what I found Cam in my journey was, I spent like five or six years of personal development on my own, just kind of reading the books, doing my, you know, getting one-on-one -on -one coaching and it made a difference, but to a certain level, my development was slow. It was shallow and it was incomplete. 
the like the like the fuel on the fire of my growth came when I got like surrounded by other guys who I trusted, who were doing this work, who were opening up, surrounding myself with mirrors to go deeper. And all of the guys who are in our community have discovered the exact same thing. And they've never been in a place like that before. So yeah, if, if any part of this conversation has resonated with you, if you vibe with me, come check us out at the Great Man Within podcast, greatmanwithin.com. Awesome, brother. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing, man. And thanks just for taking the time. I'm not sure what time it is over there. I presume it's nighttime, but thank you for yeah, setting aside an hour just to have a pretty open and honest conversation, man. I, I, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Kim. This was, uh, this was awesome. You asked great questions and we're, uh, I feel like we're really doing good work, you know, and, and talking about this stuff. So thanks for your platform, man. No worries, dude. No worries.